Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Tickets are on sale right now for Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People and also Brian Cox and Robin Ince's Christmas Compendium of Reason. And tickets for all of them are selling quite rapidly, so make sure you get in early and get the best seats for those shows at Hammersmith Apollo and King's Place and the Lowry in Salford. There are going to be lots of amazing guests at both of those shows as usual and proceeds from them will be going to charity as they always do each year. Our Cosmic Superheroes event that we did in Manchester that we talked about uh, on this podcast, a recording of that is now available on the Science Shambles podcast with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Sheena Crookshank and Susie Gage. Head over and subscribe to Science Shambles to listen to that. Before we start, a big thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters. We say it each week, uh, Book Shambles and everything else at the Cosmic Shambles Network would not be possible without your generous support. So we thank you for that. Hope you're enjoying the extended episodes that you get as a perk for being one of our supporters. And now let's get on to this week's episode of Book Shambles. Here's Robin and Josie. Uh, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, uh, and today we have with us Samira Ahmed, who is um, currently doing News Watch. Uh, and uh, oh no, don't worry, I was going to go through okay, more sorry. than blind, blimey. Sorry, and Samira Ahmed will now tell you what she's currently doing. Let's let's get no, you do it. When is this going to run? Uh, it'll depends. be about three weeks time, probably. Okay. You, I think you just punished her for being assertive. Well, yeah, no, right hang on. Happens. I was doing the introduction. If she, if she was doing an introduction, please welcome the author of The Far Pavilions. I've written more than that. Hang on, I haven't done the other bits yet. And broadcaster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> please welcome the author and broadcaster, Samira Ahmed, from Newswatch, Front Row, uh, also uh, the best version, I think, of Sunday Live. Uh, oh, Sunday Morning Live. Sunday Morning Live. Oh, you. It was the best version. It was. I, I thought that was the... Uh, um, the gold the, standard. Yeah, do you know what I so... tried to do? I, I kept saying... But but we have to, we have to get on, we have to have light and not just heat, and we have to be fair. And I was really worried about putting on air people saying stuff that was, well, it's difficult when it's a religion show, but you know, mm. stuff that was um, either dodgy and homophobic or made up. Yeah, it was. Well, how do I mean doing? <laughs> we're, we're very quickly just gone because you're doing Newswatch at the moment, and this this battle that does go on and 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 I think the BBC one of the the biggest conversations I had while I was I was touring at the end of last year was people coming up to me mm. saying what's going on with the BBC news and there mm. does seem to be a uh, and you and you do get caught up between two which is on one side you do sometimes go well those people seem to be noticing illusory bias and then other times you do go a lot of the nice uh, you know middle class people who came to my book event in Chipping Norton are the kind of people who've always listened to t- the Today programme. Um, they, they don't have Pol Pot tattooed on their chest uh, and they are going, someone's gone a little bit wrong. Mm. No, I think I think there's definitely an issue 
Um, and the interesting thing about Newswatch is you know, it's the only place, the only broadcaster, which actually does offer a right to reply. But we have an issue, which is um, who presents complaints. So I actually spend a huge amount of time going into schools and specifically talking about Newswatch and encouraging younger people to come forward. Um, but I think there's it's quite an interesting observation, purely anecdotal, but basically older people, and particularly older white men, are much more confident of coming forward of to course. complain. Um but there's because also things... They, they're like, well, I'm right, and this is wrong. And they haven't been challenged. Well, sometimes they have really good points when they say, you know, why did you call that person an insurgent and not a terrorist? Some of it is really good spots. And sometimes it reflects some of the bigger divisions in the country when we get a lot of complaints about the BBC being pro-Lee, sorry, pro-Remain. And, you know, you have to reflect that. Um, but equally... Oh, God, I don't know. I have to be so careful what I say. But I'm proud of what I do. And I think, to their credit, the BBC is sticking by the programme. And if anything, I think we're hoping to make the programme a bit bigger. Wow. I'd, like to, I'd like to cover radio, because at the moment, bizarrely, it covers TV and online. But it doesn't cover radio. And I think it should cover all news mm. and current affairs, because it would be lovely to have the Today programme as part oh, of our... If it thing, could be subject it? to that scrutiny. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. It would be great. Totally. And how much do you feel it's the difference between the fact that everyone's opinion is now out there? Well, that's and really and so because things like talking about the BBC bias, if you look at what the Glasgow Media Unit were doing in the you know in, in the nineteen eighties, very often you know the, the the continual thing of going well, of course, the left wing bias of the BBC turns out to predominantly be a couple of guests on News Quiz, and <laughs> yes. you know and and yes, and, yes, yes. and actually the analysis of it, certainly the analysis, for instance, during the the, the last you know Iraq War was a very different analysis to what we hear from so much depends on what are the what are the kind of parameters you're analyzing things under so in the end newswatch can only ever really at the moment be a snapshot of the kind of complaints coming in i'm quite good at looking at what's causing a buzz on social media and then going out and saying you know if you've got comments you can contact us but we've had a couple of things where i thought actually you've pointed out something really important um there was um, andrew neil was giving a tough time to Matt Hancock on an interview and one of the emails that we read out was saying that was too hard and another one was saying oh it was great it was like he punched him and then he got up and he punched him again and you know we had a couple of complaints saying in the current climate with all the violence and the threats and what we know has happened in the past to MPs is this really appropriate and I know some people would think oh that's a snowflake overreaction but actually it's completely legitimate to say the tone we use and the kind of comments that might be made in a jokey form we have to think carefully about and the only other one I have to say because you know, there's two things. One is there was a couple of cases when people sent in those, you know, like in private, I just those rude things that sound like a name, but they're really rude. Sure. Yeah. They had a couple of those where they'd obviously sent in complaints to get a rude phrase read out by me and that got through. And I said to the producer, you have to say it out loud to yourself too and see if it sounds rude. <laughs> I can't believe but, it got through. Oh, it did, it did. And I'm not even going to say it. It's awful. I still feel so annoyed about it. But the other one was... Um, Oh, God, was it? Oh, yeah. Sometimes we get people to film themselves, you know, and send in a little VT yeah. where they do their thing. And all these viewers noticed that this guy had a load of books about Hitler on the shelf. Oh, God. But then, you know, lots of people do, to be fair. I'm sure Churchill had lots of books about Hitler or briefings about Hitler. There weren't as many, yeah. The, the, the books then were, yeah. <laughs> that industry's really grown, hasn't it? In the... it's, it's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Can I say, I've been to the Castle Commons Library, which is not open to the general public fascinating and I went and checked and there's a there is a whole load of shelves which is nothing but biographies of Churchill huh. and I think it's I think it is legitimately possible to say we have more than enough biographies of Churchill by now yep. but one of the interesting things about that library is it has everything that's been 
taken away from local authorities. So it has really has fully qualified librarians. They write briefings for MPs on issues. You can go in any time. You know, it's everything that uh, apparently the nation doesn't need anymore. Mm, but but MPs do. Well, that's I thought so it was really common, interesting. Isn't it? The subsidised so catering, the good pension schemes, the holidays. Like if you looked at Parliament as a model for society, people would be doing a lot better. Yeah. It wasn't too political, was it? It's just an observation. No, that's not political. It's not too political. Do you know what? If if on this podcast it was considered too political to suggest <laughs> that libraries are a good thing and should be celebrated, we've really fucked it up. This is a very pro-library show. And if you're not pro-library, you can get oh, out, but quietly. Okay. You know, the last time I, sp- I spoke to you about libraries, you were collecting... It was the time that libraries were starting to close and Robin was on Twitter mm. saying something about, you know, good quotes. And I was working at Channel 4 News at the time, or I just left, and I remember I was sitting and reading a library book at my desk in my lunch hour, and John Snow came in and went, there is nothing sexier than a woman <laughs> reading a library book. And it was such a sweet thing to say. It was just him having a joke. But I loved that. And I offer it up again because I thought it was sweet. John yeah, Snow in sexual harassment <laughs> work well, row. That's really important, that exactly why it's not. It was <laughs> no, absolutely it was lovely. A colleague being really sweet. <laughs> See, I love I come over to talking with the other day about library books, that 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 history work, because they're always cheaper to buy as well, secondhand, even like first editions or whatever. If I they're a library book, they're not really worth anything because they be or not not as much. But I prefer, I love oh, if I see somebody's an ex-library copy and I look at the stamps and I go, oh, look how many times it's taken out in 1974, yeah. but 76 was a quiet year for that one. Wonder what happened? I know. Yes. They just put that in the, all of that. I've got a lovely the first edition of the Earthsea trilogy. Ursula uh, Green. And, and, yeah, and and that's you know, and and it's uh, and and one of Restaurant at the End of the Universe, uh-huh. which is a cover that wasn't used at any other stage. It, it's a very specific edition, and again. Because it's next library copy, it's not. But it doesn't I, matter. I got because... an author to sign one. I went to interview Alan Garner, the Alan Garner, in his beautiful medieval farmhouse on Anglo-Saxon <laughs> burial ground up in <laughs> Cheshire, and I found um, it was a copy of Elidor that was exactly the same as the as the copy I would have had when I first read it at school. And it was one of the first books I borrowed from the library, and had words in it I didn't understand, like lays. <laughs> which I didn't even know how to pronounce. So I had no idea what oh, it was. Oh, yeah, you read it and yeah. in your head you're like, anyway, I took it to him and when he opened it, so I said, would you mind, it's an ex-library. But it had been withdrawn from Cheshire libraries. I somehow it had turned up in London and he signed it with a little exclamation mark next to withdrawn from Cheshire libraries, which made it even lovelier. <laughs> Because have you read his new book about, which is about just yeah, a that's short why memoir? I was oh, it's for that. It's a very sweet. What was it called again? I've forgotten. I can see the yellowness of the cover, Where but shall I can't we read run the word. To? Mm. It's great. And one of the brilliant things about him, because of course he remembers the Second World War really well, is he gave this passionate statement about why he loathes nostalgia. And because ah. I asked specifically about that in the kind of culture we're in. And he's, you know, two things. One is he just remembers feeling viscerally that Hitler was out to kill him and just what that meant. You know, the way that those of us remember living in the 80s through the Cold War and this visceral terror of, I guess, this existential terror, I guess, of of being annihilated by a bomb, which yeah. my children still don't understand. That was the kind of terror that he lived with. And he had a plan about if the, if the Germans ever came, what he and his mother would do when he was going to jump out a window and kill himself and stuff. Um, and so he said the thing about nostalgia is, you know, well, the thing is you get up every day in the morning to build the future... And that's what life is about, and that's why I loathe nostalgia. Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah. but that, that I was just reading Fintan O'Toole's book, Heroic Failure, which is kind of about the the English psychological malaise that leads to something like Brexit. This this strange, uh, and that <laughs> has a lot in terms of the the strange nostalgia for how we elevate failure, how you know, and and it's a really. Because I I just find it very odd that that uh, thinking of reading something like Matthew Sweet's. 
West End Front. Oh, it's Yeah, because, lovely. again, the, the wars, you said, you know, thinking about it's it, where, uh, oh, everyone all came together, didn't they? Well, no, they didn't. In fact, mm. in the posh hotels, the servants weren't even allowed to go into the cellars while London was being, until they went, right, you know, we're serving it. I mean, it's a and really... locking up all the Italian waiters in internment camps. No, I mean, Matthew's book is lovely. I remember going to the book launch and some of the survivors from... They'd interviewed from that time, had come. It was lovely. So, what's the name of this book? It's called West End Front. The West End it's, Front. It, it, it's just so a it's really. It's about the West End. It's about the Blitz. Grand Hotels during the Second World War. So, wow. the Savoy and, and the Waldorf and all the people who worked there, a lot of whom we you know were Italian or, yeah. you, know, you're, you know, they were continentals. Yeah. And how they tried to maintain a little bit like. It's you, like uh, the Titanic, you, isn't it? Yeah, they they were going to maintain. The, there's uh, like uh, Naomi Klein's most recent book, where she took. No. You know, oh, the power. The the, the one where she talks no. about the you know yes, the, the, the green zone and the red zone. Oh, that is you know. shock doctrine. And, oh, well, she also talks about it in the new one no. as well. She talks a lot Sorry, about the green zone and the red zone. Sorry, just very pleased with myself for um, having a brain. <laughs> but she. Uh, and I think that's what it is, that, that you know, yeah. the, the, yes. the West End Front is about the green zone, which is we, we wish to continue to live mm. exactly as we always have done. Yes. Um, and you shan't threaten us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, we were on nostalgia. Oh, no, it's because we talked talk about Alan Garner's most recent yeah. book, which, is, which is, is, a, is a lovely... Where Shall uh, We Run To, I think it's called. Yes, I think I, I can't remember. These, it is. Josie, you've been good at remembering things, Shock Doctrine. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, is that it? You only have one memory. It, it is, I'm yeah. really pretty sure it's called Where Shall We Run To? I read it and I did a whole interview with him about oh, it. And what's it a memoir of? It's his memoir of his childhood in the wow. Second World War. And one, he spent loads of time really ill, seriously ill. All those, you know, all these things that we vaccinate against now for really good reason. But the one advantage, there'll probably be someone out there think, well, ha, huh, this is why we shouldn't vaccinate kids, is he had all this time. He basically taught himself to read, I think. Um, because he spent so much time in bed. Oh. But also, you know those hallucinatory ways you see the world when you're really sick and you have a temperature? Oh, yeah. Um, I think you know, his imagination really flourished. So he was but, basically tripping for about five years yeah, of his life. he missed a lot of school. Um, but also, of course, because you know, now he'd probably be watching non-stop television or have the internet. You'd be in bed with stuff coming at you. It's that whole isolation of your mind and, your, and, and the way that you roam the pages of a book and roam a world. Mm. Um, I've coming on a programme to talk about books. I'll tell you, one of the things that's made me feel a grown-up is about five, six years ago, we got bookshelves built. We've got this big room upstairs and we had bookshelves built all around. And now when you walk in, it smells of books and it's full of books. And we've got sofas and we lie on there reading. And I can't think of anything else other than perhaps giving birth to children that's made me feel I'm definitely a grown-up. It's a private library. That's what you've I created. Have a private library. And I've got little dolls, not because I'm a creepy person who collects dolls, but we I were say in personal, some... not private. No, personal. Not is not creepy library. But I've got little stuffed. Uh, I've got a stuffed little Kurt Vonnegut doll. Huh. I've got an Ada Lovelace, and I've got an Edgar Allan Poe, and a. I know she's not actually. Well, she's a literary figure. Dorothy Gale from Kansas, from Wizard oh, of Oz. Yeah, sure. And they sit on my shelves. That sounds so nice. So you brought some of your books from your Yeah, library. well, I brought... Let's see what we've... I brought the book that I love most. bookmarks, actually. Should we start I on your bookmarks? Book You're right. the first person to have brought... Um... OK, these are the most recent four I bought. And I actually bought two from the Bodleian Library because um, I was there f- to interview Jeff Coons quite recently and I've been collecting bookmarks. Oh, how was that? Have you, so you've been to the exhibition at the Ashmolean then? Yeah, I didn't have... Oh. oh, where's John Ruskin's house? Oh, it's... Um, Brantwood is um, in the Lake District, Coniston. Oh! And... Um, Basically, when I was seven or eight and I started at school, you used to have to buy them at every museum and every tourist attraction. Yep. And they are leather, so I know there might be reasons people object. But they, I've got hundreds now, and they're just like they're received near from where you went, and they take no room. You know, they're just a very long, thin pile. And I put the date on the back. And I actually, I've never used them as bookmarks, but I just love them. 
And I actually once found, I surely shouldn't have bought them, but I was in a charity shop and someone was selling, they were selling them in bundles. Oh. And there were places that I'd never go. I don't know if you can still get, you know, a bookmark from the Sellerfield. I suspect not. <laughs> but I just thought, I can't not get those. So I brought those because um, I just think, I wish more museums still did them, but they don't. Yeah. But the Bodleian does them in about 50 colours. But then I they love would. Keeping, keeping one associated with a certain book. So oh, I used to make them myself and then I found a book that I must have read in 2003. See, I'm especially using this one. Oh, this, nice. is, this is from the um, Assyrian exhibition at the British Museum and it's cuneiform. And I'm reading The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry, which I'm ashamed to say I haven't read before, but I'm doing an event you with her. You don't have to be that ashamed. It only came out a couple of years ago. I, yeah. <laughs> I bet there's other books you haven't read. Well, I, the other one, this is one of the ones I've just finished, which is The Sixth Extinction, which is fantastic. And this came out, I think, about two or three years ago. And i very bad at buying books and then they sit around but I do get around to picking them up eventually and it's just so timely because it just gets you thinking in a really practical way about how extinction works and it's not just about climate change it's the fact that we've had five before and the different reasons they're caused and I'm a I think it's partly because I'm a journalist but I'm a great believer that when the world is a huge giant mess and a problem like climate change can seem so horrific you want to turn your face away from it. A book like this where chapter by chapter she makes a focus. She goes to look at why all the bats are disappearing from this place in the States. She looks at why all these frogs are disappearing from this place in the Amazon. She looks at how, how we came to believe in extinction in the first place because it was a really controversial theory. And so it just each chapter focuses on data and I'm a great believer in facts and data to help us get a grip and change things one th- one thing at a time. It's a really good read. So what's your process as 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 someone who's, who's worked in journalism for a long time in terms of research, which of course has changed a great deal over the last 20 years, but how, when you are given a big project, how do you start in terms of going, right, how am I going to collate the information to, to create the story in the fullest possible way? Two things. One, you start very practically is how long is the finished thing going to be and how much time do I have? So I'm interviewing Samuel L. Jackson this week. Ah, cool. And um, I'm going to see the film tomorrow, Captain Marvel. Um, but I know someone who knows him quite well and has worked with him. So I've already been sent some links and a bit of a chat about that. Um, I've seen, I won't be able to watch all the films, but I've seen enough of them. And I'll go and get some cuttings and things. So some of that is really practical. What can I do in the next couple of days? Yeah. Um, but when I did, I did a whole Q&A with Jane Fonda, and it was a career retrospective at the BFI. Now, there was no way I was going to walk into that without really preparing. Of course. I had asked for her autobiography as a present at Christmas when it first came out, but I hadn't got around to reading it. I read it. Full of really good stuff to pick out, like the fact that Grandpa Munster told her all about the civil rights movement when they were working together and they shoot horses, don't they? The actor. Al Lewis, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was. and she said he was just like, you know, really brilliant to talk to about her kind of awakening sense of, of civil rights activism. Everything was brilliant. But just things like that you wouldn't know unless you had no. done a bit of proper reading. I, I watched the films of hers I hadn't seen because I picked the clips myself for them. And my approach, and it's partly, I think, growing up with my background is I've always had to be better prepared. I've always had to show that I'm better than other people who just blag their way. Yeah. And I think it's fair, although I've never been in direct competition with, but the Boris Johnson kind of vaguely blag your way through the foreign ministry or anything, yeah. that is not an approach that a woman would ever get away with. Yeah. And it's not an approach I think you should get away with. Um, but I'm the other extreme, so I tend to try and read as much as I can. But I'm practical too. If I'm going to do a short interview, it is possible to be overprepared, so... Of course, because then Sometimes you end up you asking like, a question where you have you to have five caveats in no, it or no, no, something. You, you don't want to do that. Wow. Um, but it's, great, it's a great privilege, my job. So you know sometimes people think, what's your favourite book you'd save? 
Oh, for me, it would be a cookbook. So this is Sheila Ferguson of The Three Degrees. Huh. Um, she wrote a cookbook in 1990 called Soul Food, and it was one of the first um, books that had really lavish photographs and family stuff. But she basically traces, she's from Philadelphia, and she traces all these recipes back to her slave ancestors. These are two of her slave ancestors. She had a um, Native American kind of great-grandmother. And, and then all the photographs in the book are like, you know, her family in... in in the States. And, you know, these are her lovely kids because she's got an English uh, husband. Um, and can I see? I, yeah, and there's two things about this book. One is, it's just such beautiful stories and it's really full of fun, the way it's written. There's even recipes for things like squirrel and scrambled brains because she said, <laughs> and frog's legs because people would eat them. And she says, I don't expect you to, but I've just stuck the recipe in. But also the portion size. Um, and the portion size, a lot of you look at books from the 70s, the portion sizes are actually a bit small now, I think. And this one, the portion sizes are proper. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God. I love but the it. apple pie, I've made so much stuff from there. And proper brownies. And, um, oh, it's good. I, oh, so this is um, slight. It's out of print, but it should be back in print. Oh, yeah. We always oh, try, yeah, we strive every amazing. year. This it's year it might be Sheila. For, but um, uh, we've got every year there's a certain book mm. that I hope the next person guest we have on also brings that in because sometimes well, it goes into this little. Well, uh, I bought multiple copies of this. I have a shelf where I, I bought books to give my children. Uh, did you? I don't know if you think about this. You've got kids, haven't you? But I've got a copy of um, like a 60s copy of The Feminine Mystique. It's a duplicate of my own, which she, she's not going to read it yet, but I'm hoping she will soon. And I've got it ready for her when she does. Um, I've got them both cookbooks. Um, the same ones, and then oh, I've got lovely. I've got a spare copy of Soul Food. That's so, so the Feminine Mystique. That's the Betty, Betty Friedan. Betty Friedan. Yeah. So I have it. I haven't yet read it. How was it in, in terms? Of obviously, that's an important book for you. What was mm. it about that book that was? I read it in my early twenties when I was working at Newsnight, and I was just starting to explore all these books that I thought I haven't read yet and I should and one of the things I loved is it's, it's about the late 50s early 60s which in many ways I'd grown up in my childhood watching Doris Day films and adoring her and knowing that they were something contradictory but you know there were these feminist women in this very non-feminist time and Betty Friedan's book is really brilliant because she kind of makes the connection between the Mad Men era and the selling, the heavy selling of domestic bliss to women as consumers to spend money um, and what women were rebelling against. So it delves into the whole, I think they called it the, the, the illness that has no name, which was the kind of malaise of depression and you know, the taking of Valium. But there's also this amazing line in there where she says, with washing machines, clean sheets are possible twice a week. And the whole way in which capital consumerism and supposedly labour-saving devices actually created new standards for women to conform to, which entrapped them more. And that is the most... That was a mind-blowing concept for me. It wasn't just as simple as we know advertising targets women and stereotypes. Women had to go back home after the war to make way for men. It was the idea that a washing machine could be a tool of your um, imprisonment, renewed imprisonment, rather than liberation. Wasn't that fascinating? Yes. Well, I want to talk a little bit about you did you did an event with uh, the Bishop of Leeds uh, a, a while ago, and it was it was a topic I meant to talk to, to Professor Gina Rippon about when I was talking about the gendered brain with her the other day, which is which is on Science Shambles, and you can listen to it somewhere. Uh, very deft. Which is, very deft. Um, she writes, you know, about the mad, bad, dangerous, you know, the, 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 those women that were written about by you know by the Brontes, etc. And mm. and that's partly is that partly what the kind yeah. of difficult women. Uh, the, the discussion you had with, with uh, Nick Baines was about? Yeah, well, it's interesting because Nick kept, kept saying to me, well, what should, we, what should women do to stop being labelled difficult? And I said, but my whole point of my talk is that it doesn't matter. It's like men label us difficult and it, the issue is with men. Also, not... that question, what should women do to avoid <laughs> this abuse? I think you may well know, and I don't want Nick, because he might be listening to this, to think that I'm slagging off. But I thought it was really interesting that it sort of missed the point, which was... Um, 
I was just making a joke in a way about women being labelled difficult. So part of what I was doing was looking at, um, well, if you look at Bronte heroines and heroes, um, you know, the, the men like Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, are, you know, they're domestic abusers. Mm. And if you look at the very first silent film of Wuthering Heights that was made, he was kind of a Nosferatu predator character in the way he was portrayed. But the Laurence Olivier film turned him into this quite romantic Ideal and this idea of the man who the right woman could fix, and that women trying ah. to fix violent, abusive men, which is a really dangerous thing. And that, um, so in a way, it's actually flipping the idea of who is difficult. Mm. And if you look at other, well, my favorite Bronte is Anne Bronte, um, and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall is a book about challenging the way marriage trapped women, and it's a feminist campaigning novel before the, you know, the Married Women's Property Act, where women were the possessions of their husband, and basically. You know, her heroine is running away from a from an abusive violent. She's running away from Heathcliff, and it's the only Bronte sister who sees those men as horrific rather than fascinating. Sort of hot. And, yeah. and I think, and I traced a line all the way through to if you look at um, Kylo Ren, the Adam Driver character in the current Star Wars films, he's basically Heathcliff, isn't he? I mean, I don't know how they're going to end it, but it's like you know, he's sort of sexy, and maybe Ray could cure him. Um, so that was part of what I was looking at. I hate at. that character. I'm not a big Star Wars fan. I haven't seen. But you know where you go. Oh, stop complaining. You haven't had it that hard. No. It's like Morrissey. <laughs> He's Everything's all right. <laughs> You're living in Carol Lombard's house in the Hollywood Hills. Yes, stop I... saying you've had a bad day. Morrissey can't claim to be a loser in life. He's a winner in life. Yeah, but he has that Trumpish, you know, I think you'll find the real victim is me. Do you know, I'm so glad, because I was really southern, that I never was into the Smiths, and now I've been entirely vindicated. <laughs> no, no, you're not entirely vindicated, no, that, actually, Johnny not, because Johnny Mars is brilliant. Because Johnny Mars is brilliant. No, 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 I take that also, all back. also, Morrissey used to steal brilliantly. Elizabeth Smart's, uh, as, as, I, as I sat at Grand Central Station uh, and, and wept, that, yes. is, is that, is that, is that, I always yeah, get that I sort of... I sat down at Grand Central Station and wept. Yeah, yeah. that. He stole brilliantly and made the song Well, I Wonder. No, there but are beautiful there, Smith there songs. There is a but... point where I think we were enabling him when we shouldn't later on. In yeah, this well, I think he had a certain someone's... status. But the other thing when I think about difficult women was um, I'm obsessed with the fact that Disney heroines used to be better in the 90s. So, And I do this talk a lot, and I give it to teenage boys as much as teenage girls. But if you look at the Disney heroines like Esmeralda in um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, you look at... Um, Meg in Hercules, who actually has a line in the film where she says, men sometimes think you mean yes when you say no. That's a line in a Disney film. <laughs> Look at Mulan, where she meets her husband at work. Um, <laughs> they're grown women. And I, I freeze through all the moments where they're really angry and are really furious with men who are just mistreating them. And I just think, where has all that righteous anger gone? And I just think the 90s... I see age... I, came, I basically hit my 20s in the 90s. And in nostalgia, I look back on it, and there are lots of things that were terrible... But oh, women were portrayed really well. There was a lot of really positive role models for us mm. out there. And, and the well, Disney heroines were part of comedy, them. Comedy, I think there was a big backlash in the late 90s, early 2000s against women comedians on television and even live. And if I think about the 90s growing mm. up, you know, you had Roseanne Barr as like the number one show in yeah, America, yeah. French and Saunders, uh, Joe Brand, Victoria, Victoria Wood. Wood, all the biggest sort of stars of comedy. And then bizarrely, I th like I think, yeah, I, then oh, you spent the first 10 years of the 2000s with people going, well, there aren't any women comedians. Are going, but you think but about the X-Files, you know, and um, Agent Scully is the... Um, calm, rational one, and he's the emotional conspiracy theorist. And, but that know. said, that's interesting, because again, I think it's actually in, Can in, I just in say, Jean I had Rickenson. three questions set on University Challenge around my assessment of the 90s as a feminist decade. <gasps> 
And they got them all wrong, sadly. <laughs> oh, that's depressing. <laughs> but they that's like highs and lows. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Gina Rifkin, I think it was in, in Gina's book where, yeah. where she talks a little bit about actually that 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 makes that that's a, that's not a good character that she is Who? because uh, oh, Agent, oh, Agent Scully. Scully because she's kind of like oh what are you going on about with all your bonkers bit that's actually right oh you know that yeah. there is a danger that it's what we've talked about before which is sometimes certain writing of female sitcom characters which used to be oh. hey I'm a bonkers man I'm a oh Jonathan grow stop up it. Michael they were always someone who, yeah. oh don't be so silly Jonathan oh your mother's coming is she oh Jonathan yeah. you know that kind of yeah. um, and it's an interesting but the, the two readings well, there the, the smart person but also is yeah but it was partly for me again I've written a whole thing about lanyards in 90s um, television but these were women who were like appearing in places of authority so the FBI agent mm. and um, Alison Janney CJ in the West oh, Wing sure. um, and I remember when I joined the BBC in 1990 we this had to heighten security around the start of the, the Gulf War the first Gulf War and we were all called back as trainees to, to man um, the news desk and I remember we were forced to wear our passes on little lanyards and I just remember thinking oh this is like <laughs> you know, I wish it wasn't being Agent Scully because the TV series hadn't started then. But I definitely felt there was something about wearing, you know, I'm in this establishment institution. And I think the 90s, I've heard older women say it to me, um, the 90s are when you actually started to really see the impact of the battles that our mothers had had in wow. the 70s. You know, we were starting to appear in big numbers, you know, in, in hospitals as consultants, yeah. you know, in politics. If you think about the impact of that generation of women who came in um, with Tony Blair, Blair in particular... Yeah. Yeah. So um, part of it was just being there in significant numbers. And as you're right, in the long term, as we've discovered with equal pay, amongst other things, there was so much that wasn't right. I mean, I look back since Brett Kavanagh to the Anita Hill case when she testified to try and stop Clarence Thomas being nominated to the Supreme Court. Mm. You know, we've had so many of these battles before and we still haven't resolved them. Do you know, a friend was saying to me the other day, we were walking along and they were saying that they'd seen Whoopi Goldberg giving a speech. Oh, it must be with the Lorena Bobbitt. Um, documentary that's oh, coming out this. and they said that Whoopi oh, Goldberg gave some speech where she different. said for the first time ever men are as frightened as women are and you know hopefully this is going to be a watershed moment and things are going to change and they were like but that's that's me too again like how many yeah. times well it's do like we have looking to back at the, the Clinton story I mean you know how was um, Monica Lewinsky treated by the mainstream media. Um, she, you know, it embarrassed people to think about the fact that he'd behaved in a predatory way with this very young woman. Yeah. Um, I think she's come out with such dignity. Yeah. But it's taken us more than a decade to realise what her experience represented about the abuse of power, yeah. as much as we may love Clinton in other ways. you know, And that, that whole complexity of a person could do something good in one way and yet do something that's really wrong in another. And I was having a conversation with someone on the train on the way here today about how social media has made it harder than ever now to, to deal with the fact that people can be contradictory and it doesn't mean you should dismiss everything good they did. Mm. Um, you know, the way that mm. a, a historic tweet comes out and suddenly your career potentially is, you know, is, is, is over. I, I'm, it just worries me. Or certainly people feel hounded and, and feel they have to step back. Sure. Yeah. yeah, there's increasing research, isn't there, into uh, what people now no longer feel they can express, and it's best to get, which is a is a is a retrograde step to go. Oh, I've got a thought that might be considered to be bad, but I only want to talk about it so that we can. Ex oh no, and also in, who's allowed in. to express things? Because you know, if you look at the way that, like, obviously in my experience, like the way that YouTubers on the uh, 
right side, right as in far right side of the spectrum, say, the right side uh, not correct, uh, you know, organise the way that they try to eliminate people from the discourse. You know, it's not, you know, you look at who's being allowed to speak and who's not being allowed to speak and that sort of thing. If you bring it back to reading, um, there's this new book out about the concept of vertical reading, which is the reading we used to do before the internet, which is when you go deep into something. And I I think it's easy to be sanctimonious about books per se, but I'm really struck by the impact of skim reading, which is what, you know, you can an you can article, click on all these article. great articles and there's there's good stuff and there's some. I mean, I don't know if you need to write twelve thousand words about you know that author who turned out to fabricated all that stuff about his life. I thought it was giving him the attention that maybe he didn't need that much of. Uh, which one was it? This Mallory. Time? Mallory. Oh, I, right, who I'd yeah. interviewed, by the way. We could talk Whoa, about that. How was that? Um, well, the thing was, it's I so read, hard with you. Know, hang on, which one was he? I, I, I can't remember. His him. name is. He's got. He's got um, it's basically an attempt to cash in on the whole Paula Hawkins girl on a train yeah, thing. Right. And it's so calculated. And, it, and it's successful in that, you know, he wrote it and it became a bestseller and it's just been made into a film. And but he, and, he needed, and what he'd done is lied a lot about it. He came to have cancer and his mother died of cancer and he got promoted very quickly. So I think what people are angry about is how a white man managed to lie and blag his way to a very high salary but actually not really have any qualifications. And, and I, I read it and, you know, I didn't think it was very good. But a lot of these psychological thrillers, um, you know, they're... they're they're fun, quick reads, and people like them, and no one denies that people bought the book and read it. And he came on, and he was very, very enthusiastic and gushy, and I remember thinking, well, you know, he kind of is what he says he is, other than the fact that it turned out there was all this stuff about his life that wasn't true. But he wasn't talking to me about that. He was talking to me about why he'd... I mean, in a way, he was quite honest about the fact that he wanted to write this kind of book. And it's it's very similar to Rear Window, and he loves all those old films. He said so. He hoped people would go and see all those old Hitchcock films. Yeah, there was nothing. To, there was nothing wrong in what he'd said. Just I just remember cynical. thinking. Well, I think I think it'd be fair to say it would all seem quite cynical. Um, I just remember thinking it wasn't that great a book. But you know, I don't I don't mind people writing books that I don't particularly like. That you know, who says that? I'm really wary of how easy it is to slag people off. And I see some of these book reviews that are so nasty. And you think, what if you know, if you don't want to read it, then don't read it. But to slag it off almost for the sake of it, yeah. I, I can't bear that. But what's it, that's an interesting thing. We talked about it a few times before. But that moment where, if someone's backstory, it turns out is a fabrication. How much does that change the work of art? I mean, we talked, I think, about J.T. Leroy a while ago on this, you know, who wrote The Heart is Deceitful Above All uh, 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 Things and, and who was... Have you turned... seen the documentary about them? No. Oh, my gosh. There's Do no you know incredible... about J.T. Leroy? No, so what, did he write one of the Jonathan Franzen no, things he, he, where he, he was saying the, stuff? Oh, no, who is the, it? It was James Frey. Yeah. James Frey wrote the memoir. Yeah, very painful kind of, you know, his mother was a sex worker in, in you know, kind of truck stop places and all this. And then it turned out it was it was a... A, a, a woman who'd written all these books and just went, oh, I can't seem to get her way in. So she got, I can't remember, I think it's a relative who kind of dressed up almost like Truman Capote and became this tremendous, this little guy who it was... wasn't a guy. She So this is, there's a documentary about it and I think it's called Finding Sarah, but I'm not sure. It might be called Finding JT Leroy. I say Leroy, I, I think I might be wrong. And yeah. um, uh, in it, this woman is a very unusual woman who is JT Leroy. There is... You watch it and you sort of... Her energy is very, like, formidable. Her behaviour is very um, amoral, I would say. And she basically got a friend's girlfriend to pose as this sort of androgynous uh, guy. and But then the friend's girlfriend ended up having an affair with the director Asia Argento... Uh, but the, who but, made the film Heart is Yeah, yes, yes. And during that, 
all the time, the woman who had written these was doing a kind of Cyrano de Bergerac thing where she was calling Asia Argento and having long conversations with her while she was having a physical relationship with the person posing as her. And then it all compounded. And it gets more and more weird as well because then the woman who was JT Leroy went to work on Deadwood. Was it all consensual, though? I mean, did everyone sort of know or was someone being ripped off in that scenario? Uh, Someone was being conned because she she wasn't aware that she was dealing with two people. Oh, 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 that's creepy. Yes. Wow, I didn't know about... It's a really fascinating documentary. I think I saw it on Amazon, so I think it's available in this country. So that that changed it even more. But, yeah. So let's... not Maybe not that example. Then. <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, 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 so no, 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 don't be like sorry. Lance, I, think, I, think I have it's information a, here. The, uh, you have passed the memory test. <laughs> the, um, I don't but, believe in even people... like. There's such a tendency now to sort of think, what did they do in their lives? And then to put their biography and pose it on their fiction. And I think unless they were... A, you know, do something really criminal or something really ethically and morally wrong. I sometimes think, can't we separate them? I don't know. But that's what I wonder is, how much is that story part of our experience of of, of reading? So because I very often I pick up books, I know nothing about that yeah. person, so it makes no, no... But if I have read a lot about them and then I find out that was all a lie, I, I don't, I don't yeah. think it affects me very much. I don't think I... But for some people that seems to be quite an important thing. I think the issue, certainly in the, the the CJ Mallory, whatever his name is, is it Dave Mallory? Daniel Mallory. Daniel, Mallory. Dan Mallory, that's his name. Um, I think what's been interesting is it's a, been a big exposure about the way the publishing industry runs on privilege. And I think that's been the real legitimate scandal. But that's for the publishing industry to sort out in a way. And the same with that, with broadcasting, there's all kinds of issues that have emerged around equal pay. But we kind of have to sort it out amongst ourselves rather than impose it on yeah, the book Everyone is else. sort of the least relevant part of the yeah, story. Yeah, in a way, really. the book is what the book is. There's something there about the money that gets thrown into marketing mediocre fiction, but that's always been the case. That's true with cinema, isn't it? And it's true with you know some theatre. So and some when television. people get annoyed at the Oscars, and you go, "Well, of course, the best film of the year is not going to win." Because it probably yeah. isn't the expensive one. I always say, one. Singing it's in the Rain gonna... never won a single Oscar. That's all you need to know, 1951. Wow. Oh, speaking of which, I still Oh, Stanley Donnan, of course, his... we should say. Yeah, this... just... Have you seen his acceptance speech? This is literally oh, yeah. what I was When he's tap dancing. <laughs> yeah, and he, says, and he says, in a musical, of course, when there was something this elevated, there'd be a song, so I don't know what to do. Heaven, <laughs> I mean, it's so good. Oh, well, he loved Fred Astaire. It wasn't his big breakthrough seeing Blame... Um, Flying Down to Rio, which was the breakout film for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They were actually support acts in it. Huh. Um, and I remember watching it over Christmas, BBC4 was showing Fred Astaire films a few years ago, and it was the first film of his I'd properly watched. And I love that that was the film that Stanley Donnan saw and thought, I want to be Fred Astaire, because he did become a dancer for a while. That's the other thing. He did actually become a dancer initially in New York before he then got into directing, wow. which is maybe one of the reasons he and Gene Kelly worked so well together. But dazzled. I mean, Two for the Road, he made these amazing kind of new cinema films in the 60s in Europe. Wow. His name credit, whenever it appeared on a film, like, I remember seeing um, Two for the Road. I was in... India and someone from Britain had obviously taped all these movies off the telly on the VCR and then freeze-framed out the ads and then was playing them on the hotel internal um, entertainment system. This is back in the um, sort of late 80s. And I saw Two for the Road this way on, you know, in an Indian hotel room. And at the end, you know, and it's Sandy Donnan is the director. And it's all told in flashback, you know, this portrait of a marriage flashing backwards and forwards. Um, and you just see, this is the guy who made Singing in the Rain. How magic is that? Yeah. 
Well, it's it's all so innovative. Yeah. And so um, ahead of its time, I think. Billy also, Wilder. I think... I think Billy Wilder lived for 20 more years after his last film was Buddy Buddy, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matter. Mm-hmm. And apparently he just... And they went, oh, he's old now. We better not... We can't yeah, take risks it's... on him. And it's like, it's Billy bloody Wilder. Yeah, but it's not just that. People, you know, you, you come to rely on somebody who is talented and who is able of having a certain level of creative output like he might have had an injury or got married to someone and wanted to go traveling do you know what i mean like things happen and you forget that people are people they're not a machine for you and that actually output for someone to make one good film one real classic film is more than enough for a life's work do you know what i mean like you you want someone to keep going maybe he had enough money maybe he was living somewhere nice maybe he had grandchildren or something i don't know there might be reasons why he took time out but you can't force them to keep working till they die yeah, I think we, I think we should though. It's hard, I think, when you love somebody's work. Like yeah. there's a there's a musician I really love, and I'm just waiting for her to bring out a Who's new that? record. Joanna Newsom, I love her, yeah. but like she's busy. She's got like a family. She's busy, but I'm like, I need your work. Can I mention someone young because there's a young writer, and I'm. It's the first time I've ever judged a book prize. I judged the Desmond Elliott prize and the great thing about it is it's a prize awarded for someone's first novel but it's a prize for them to write their second novel oh, wow. so it's an investment in their future and the woman who won it um last year Preeti Taneja wrote this book it wasn't a first novel but she'd been a human rights kind of activist and a journalist and she wrote this whole version of King Lear but transposed to a kind of mega rich Tartar dynasty like family oh. and you know and and it's brilliant it's called when we that are young which is a quote from King Lear King Lear. Anyway, it won the prize um, quite deservedly, and she's writing her second novel now. And I just wanted to say, if you haven't read We That Are Young by Pretty Teenager, I really recommend it. And that's, that's where we have to end. We oh, haven't no. gone through your books. Well, I'm reading two books simultaneously, and they're really interesting to me because they're sort of about. Oh, that's brilliant. Trying to understand this one. Age of Anger by Pankaj. I am really enjoying it, but I've get. We I can't, by the way, we don't have time sometimes. to talk about it, so you can do trails for the fact we're going to talk about your two books next time. We'll talk about... Well, oh, hopefully I will have read more Why can't you cut out some of me? No, 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 well, no. Go. Oh, my God, are you kidding? No, no, no. Um, we'll be back again next time. Finally, they're both very interesting. So your uh, books, your trails, n- n- next time on lose, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. How to Lose a Country by Eje Temokuran and Age of Anger by Pankaj Mishra. And... Um, yeah, I'm enjoying them both. I I think this How to Lose a Country is my absolute favourite. Just her writing is astonishing. And like, is it it's fiction managing, or it non-fiction? isn't. It's about, so it's called The Seven anyway, Steps from. We'll be, uh, uh, back it, next it's called week The Seven Steps uh, from uh, Democracy to Dictatorship. And, uh, and it's about uh, her political uh, about work. So in, <laughs> thank you very much for listening. <laughs> in and, about, uh, it's a very serious book, in actual fact. But she still manages to have like moments of poetry and levity in it, which I really appreciate. Oh, so you just faded us out? Yeah, yeah, I just did a... No, you'll still be there. I'm used to it, I'm uh, used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting to talk to you. I we talked about so much it wasn't books, but it was lovely talking to it you. It doesn't matter, so it's, it's not... No, it, it's, it's but books were the, the inspiration. No, they the, were, uh, and... Um, but also, it's it, there's, I've, I wish we had more time to ask you about different things that you've done yes, and things that you've... Oh, what something. is it? It's a Japanese copy of Jim Bob's book. I love it, but I cannot. I live in two rooms. I live in two rooms. Oh, well, my legs gone dead because I was sitting badly. Come on, sing properly. You used to have a lovely posture when you were little. No, I did not. I've never had good no, posture for a day in my life. You used to have a personal trainer like I've got. I know, I've heard well. about your boxing. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening. Remember, tickets for the Christmas shows are both Nine Lessons and the Compendium are on sale now, as are Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty's Universe of Music tickets. You can support the show by getting something from our online shop uh, by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledging there or just liking, rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Nice reviews and five-star ratings on there really do help us out, push us up the charts, gets the show more noticed. So if you could take a minute to go and do that, we would be greatly appreciative that is all for now we'll be back next week with another new episode until then have a great week this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions